If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willers getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Yesterday was federal budget day in Canada. Don't you feel a lot better now? Here's Scott Thompson. Listen to that. There's your wall of sound and beautiful mono. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Darlene Love of the Crystals, uh, number 144. Number 144 on Rolling Stones, uh, top 200 greatest singers of all time. The Crystals, He's a Rebel, 1963, number one, number 19 in the UK. Uh, there you go. So here's what's odd. You know, how I'm using this because it's the Rolling Stone 200 greatest singers of all time, which we started talking about because uh, Celine Dion wasn't on it. So as I look down, and Will can verify this for me, I sent him this stuff, uh, ranked among Rolling Stone's 100 greatest singers of all time, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2011, uh, and featured in the Oscar-winning doc 20 Feet from Stardom, from which she won a Grammy. So I think it was back in 2011... 2011, so it was 2023, January, that uh, Rolling Stone published the greatest 200 singers of all time. So back in 2011, all right, uh, Darlene Love was within the top 100. We don't know exactly where. I'd have to look that up. Who cares? Uh, but this now she's at like 144. So in a decade, she has dropped. How does that happen? Further proof, uh, you really shouldn't put too much in the top 200 singers of all time. The day after the budget, how you feeling, huh? Any, w- w- what's different for you? You know, it's funny because you're watching all the news reports, and I'm, I'm doing the same thing, asking all the experts. So, uh, what's different between today and yesterday? Mm, nothing. All right, there you go. Uh, we'll talk about that throughout the course of the afternoon. And, uh, uh, yeah, um, that that's, thank goodness, really the only big story uh, that we're uh, just digesting that, I guess, over the next uh, little while. And that's probably good news considering uh, the last couple of days. Don't forget, coming up after 5 o'clock, your chance to play Hamilton's favorite game show. It's Hammerhead Trivia, a pair of tickets to the Forge FC home opener against Cavalry FC, Saturday, April 15th, Tim Hortons Field. Be there. Uh, and you can be coming up after five o'clock in the news and your chance to play uh, Hammerhead Trivia. All right. Um, you know, it's um, I keep hearing clips um, and we're going to get you one to play. Uh, we keep hearing clips of Jugmeet Singh and of the NDP saying he's ready to be prime minister. Uh, however, uh, they voted, of course, for uh, the budget along with the Liberals. And um, here we go again. And this is what Christy Freeland had to say. Here's your small little assemble of clips of uh, what each and every one of them is trying to sell you. We'll start with uh, Christy Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister. We're ensuring that we can continue to invest in Canadians and in the Canadian economy for years to come, just as we have done since 2015. Because we know that investments in Canadians are also investments in our economy. 
whatever that means. All right. Uh, and then uh, Jugmeet Singh, uh, I guess, what do you do here? Uh, many are calling this an NDP budget. He is, in fact, supporting the government, keeping this uh, this whole thing alive, uh, keeps talking about dental care and pharma care. And we must remember that there still is no plan. There are no plans, just like the GST rebate, which is now called the grocery rebate. Uh, it's a check that's coming to you and you can spend it on whatever you wish. So that's not really a dental plan or a pharma plan or a plan of anything. I mean, you just, that's like saying, I'm going to the doctor, give me some money. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, where does, you know, are, are the right people being paid? Is this, you know, it's, it's not a plan. It's just free money out the door. And again, nothing wrong with that when people need it, but uh, you need a plan for that. Uh, and here's uh, Jagmeet saying, uh, thank goodness we've got the AP, uh, NDP to, uh, to get all these cool things. Yesterday's budget shows that when New Democrats have power, we get things done for people. That's what it's shown, that we use our power to make people's lives better. Uh, also in this scrum, he talked about how uh, if we keep going, keep doing this, then Jugmeet Singh for prime minister. Well, just get her done because this transition period that we're in right now, boy, oh boy, that's killing us. Uh, here's what uh, Pierre Polyevra, as you can imagine, had to say, uh, leader of the opposition. All that they have delivered is more debt, more inflation, and more costs on the, on the backs of the hardworking hey, and the beleaguered people of this country. And that is why conservatives are proud to announce we will be voting against yeah. this inflationary stand. Two, give me this. Give me a sec. Oh, I've lost my stick. All right, and I that's the fever. <laughs> and the only prescription is more cowbell. Uh, so that's our uh, Hamilton Today report on the budget. All right, they're back, um, and no doubt ready for the snow. Uh, two new falcon eggs. I love doing this. I remember when we started doing this like years ago. It must have been 20 years. We'll ask. Uh, when this first started happening in, in falcons and whatever, uh, perching itself, uh, themselves up on, uh, and nesting up on skyscrapers and big buildings in Hamilton and such. Two new falcon eggs have been spotted in the nest of the birds that make downtown Hamilton's Sheridan Hotel their homes. To talk more about all of this, Krista Jack. Falcon Watch Coordinator and with us now. Krista, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. Thank you for having us. How are you doing? Good. So, Krista, how long have we been talking about uh, falcons on the Sheridan Hotel ledge? Uh, well, it was in uh, the spring of 1994 that Len Dixon um, was the person the person who first spotted them there and they started uh, it was confirmed in 95 by Canadian Wildlife Services and uh, they started nesting there and we've had chicks every uh, every year since almost we've so always had um, we've had a few years where the clutch failed but there's been uh, falcons there ever since 1994 so how do you how do you describe how, why they whoever it is comes back to the same spot every year because like you said once it started boy they just kept coming back how do you explain it is it obviously just a perfect spot in an urban setting but is there anything more to it than that 
Um, I think the fact that the Sheridan Hotel just mimics a cliff edge so well. So even though it's an urban setting, it is very much like a natural cliff that they would do if they were out in the wild um, or like non-urban settings. Um, also, we do have a very large population of pigeons, which, you know, it gives them meals anytime they want. There are other birds as well for them to feast on, but they do have a distinct taste for pigeons. So, Wow. Well, nothing. I don't think you get any complaints from people there. Um, uh, I don't mean to sound morbid, but have you seen a falcon take out a pigeon? I have, actually. It... Um, I, I prefer not to watch that part of nature, yeah. um, but I have to admit it is pretty amazing to be able to see them when they go into their stoop at the, um, the high speeds that they do yeah. it and how quickly they take care of business. It is remarkable, isn't it? Um, so um, uh, now when did the actual monitoring of them start with the camera and, and, and you know, the, uh, the Falcon cam per se? Okay, well, the um, Falcon Watch did actually start in '95 uh, with the first with the um, thing, yeah. set of chicks. Now, the camera, I know that did take a few years later um, for it to set up. I can't remember exactly, but it was definitely in the uh, the '99 still before or when we got the camera and. Uh, Falcon Watch has gone pretty strong ever since. I think the first few years as they were learning the kind of the ropes and how to do it might have been a little bit more of a struggle. Um, and the numbers were increased because the, um, they were so uh, threatened at the time. And it's been going strong ever since. So what about uh, the population and such? Uh, obviously, this is a prime spot for them. They found, you know, uh, a perfect spot, as you said, that mimics the cliffs and such. Uh, are we seeing a resurgence as a result of this? Is the, are, are they still, uh, is their population still declining? Um, as of right now, it has stabilized and it has been increasing. So they have slowly moved up or up the list so they're mm -hmm. just a special concern right now however um we want to keep the watch going for obvious reasons it's still we want to see their numbers increase more and protect the chicks but just because they're a special concern um, species doesn't mean they're out of the woods yet there are other species that made it to that level and something happened and then their numbers plummeted and they went back down to the endangered or threatened levels so it's still an area where you need to be concerned about the species um, I think to highlight that is the concern of the DDT that was found in right. off the coasts of California. That is the original chemical that threatened not only the peregrine falcon, but the mm -hmm. bald eagle, the osprey, all your top raptors. Um, it's actually found in the California condor already. So I haven't heard any links to whether it is affecting the peregrine falcon population, but because they're migratory birds, if it affects them in the States, it can also affect our numbers as well. And proof positive these sorts of projects work, you know, even in, in small little uh, doses like this. So what can you tell us about this year? What can you tell us about what's going on now? Well, this year we did um, have McKeever and Judson return from last year. Last Monday, we got treated with our first egg, and it happens roughly every other day because it takes a little bit for uh, McKeever there. But we have had um, four eggs now. The last one was uh, wow. on Monday. And so that's a typical size of a clutch that we usually have is four eggs. 
we don't expect any more. There could be five, but we haven't had that. I think that's more of an uncommon size of a clutch, but not unheard of. And again, for anyone watching, they can always look at the uh, the, the cameras on the hotel at uh, Hamilton Falcon Watch. You can actually see her in the snow right now carefully keeping our eggs warm. <laughs> that is cool. Uh, Ham- uh, Hamilton Falcon Watch to watch. Hamilton Falcon Watch. Uh, great work, Kristen. Again, here's just a small example of you do this sort of thing, how it uh, can have big effects. Congratulations, Krista. You should all be very proud. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Breaking down uh, the federal budget from yesterday and uh, does it affect the average Canadian who does it affect? Let's bring in Stephen Pomeroy, professor, School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University and with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Great. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Uh, your thoughts. Um, I heard a commentator say earlier on today that uh, last budget, there was quite a bit in that regarding housing and the housing uh, crunch and the situation that we Canadians find themselves in and nothing really uh, addressing that this time out. What are your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you know the last budget was very heavy on housing. Some folks referred to it as a housing budget. I think in contrast, this this current budget is almost completely devoid of any discussion of the housing issue, uh, despite the fact that it still is very much top of mind. Uh, many folks are facing challenges, especially uh, renewing mortgages at higher interest rates and renters with rising rents. So it's it remains a crisis, and it seems that government has, uh, has chosen to, to do other things uh, rather than actually address the housing issue. Uh, does that mean they feel perhaps that it's moving along? It doesn't need their help? I doubt it. I mean, they've certainly articulated concerns in the past, and obviously things haven't changed overnight. Uh, I suspect it's to some extent because of other serious uh, uh, requirements, both in terms of um, fiscal prudence and their desire to invest into the um, decarbonization and energy kind of economy. Um, In many respects, I think it's a consequence, you know, the housing issue is really collateral damage in a in a in a government and a budget that's preoccupied with bigger issues hmm. and doesn't have the time, money, or inclination to spend any time on the housing file. It seems that, and and you know, tell me if I'm over, and I'm sure I am oversimplifying this, Stephen. But it, it seems we keep giving out more fish rather than giving people the means to fish, which I remember was one of my father's great old sayings. Uh, is that what we're seeing here? Like, are we seeing a way forward? Or are we just seeing help now for those that need it the most? I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's something to that in the sense that the way we've tried to respond to the affordable housing issue and and challenge um, is, you know, we haven't really changed the way we've been doing things for the last 40 years um, and uh, thinking a little bit differently. So, you know, for many folks, particularly uh, leaving aside home ownership and the folks that are facing difficulties with a mortgage, but most of the folks struggling in the housing market are low income people uh, who can't afford to pay their rent. Uh, They're living in a place that's reasonably adequate. It's a good size for what they need for their family they just can't afford the rent so do we need to go and build them a house or can we give them a housing allowance and the the, the national housing strategy has uh, been sort of 
um, uh, rolling out uh, what's called the Canada Housing Benefit to give folks help with their rents, but it really hasn't ramped it up anywhere near as quickly as it could do or should do if we really want to address that particular problem for the low-income folks. So it's not a, a lack of so much building, you know, just building new supply isn't going to help those people. We tend to build new supply at market rates, which help mm. people that can afford it, uh, not the folks that can't afford it. So obviously we uh, we need housing, but we need it across the board, including those that uh, are having trouble getting in. What more can or what can federal governments do? Uh, many governments will say, well, it's up to the province. The province will say it's up to the municipality. The municipality will blow it back on the other two. Uh, what more can the feds do? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously the cupboards are bare to some extent, and there are some constraints on their ability to spend. But I think they could use their capacity to lend money at very low rates. They have a couple of programs that provide low rate financing, so essentially mortgage for money at around about you know three, three and a half percent. Using that resource, which doesn't cost the government any money because it's basically floating bonds, ten year bonds, and, and basically using that that revenue, uh, if it extended that that sort of lending facility to uh, to non profits that are building uh, housing to uh, uh, homeowners that are trying or renters that are trying to get into the homeownership market with low rate financing, they could actually achieve their objective of helping people, stimulating supply, but not hurting the, uh, the, the sort of the fiscal framework and pushing up spending. And it seems they haven't really been very creative and thoughtful in that area. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the days of rent control and in in the 70s when people were building apartment buildings and then it came in and then it seemed there was no more building of apartment buildings. What do we need to do to provide, as we've said, housing uh, for renters or or those that are starting to get into the market and where that seems to have dried up, where, where there used to be apartment buildings for rent, now there's condos for rent owned by various people who are investing? Yeah, when well, we ha- we have seen you know quite a strong rebound of the rental market. I mean, for twenty years, pretty well from the late nineteen nineties right through to about two thousand fifteen, we built very little new rental housing. Five uh, percent of total starts in this country were for rental, and a third of us are renters. So we had that mismatch. Um, in the last four or five years, we have seen a significant increase. We've gone from about twenty thousand units a year to over eighty thousand last year. So the the fact that rents have gone up, it's now more more feasible, it's more viable for developers to build a rental product. Many of them kind of got out of the business and started building condos back in the 90s Mm -hmm. uh, where they could get more immediate returns. And then they've been looking around lately and seeing individuals like you or I going and buying these condo units and turning out to be investor landlords uh, and charging 2,500 bucks a month. So I think the industry has woken up and realized that they can actually make decent money building rental. And we have seen the market respond to that. So I think that's a fairly positive sort of market-based response to what's going on. But as I say, those units are coming on the market in, in Hamilton, the new products, the new rentals that have been coming on stream in the last few years are renting at about 60-70% higher than the average market rent. So they're not yeah. affordable and cheap. Um, but you know, they are they are meeting demand. Uh, but they're not meet, meeting the affordability requirements. Uh, so you know, we do need a bit of both. We need we need to continue to stimulate the, uh, the industry to build market rate rental, uh, but we also need to facilitate nonprofit uh, community based organisations, your Kiwanis, your Lions, your your Indwells uh, down there in Hamilton, uh, to actually build housing that's at, at lower rents that low income folks can afford as well. And there's not many much there's not very much money in programming in that area uh, in this current budget. 
How did we get to into such a deficit in housing, all types of? How did we fall so behind building everything? It seemed, um, you know, we were trying to stop urban sprawl, so then let's densify uh, infield development, whatever, uh, and, and that was supposed to take care of the problem. So it seemed we stopped building, but we didn't do the other to make up the difference, even if, and some are questioning whether there is even enough there to, to make a difference. But it seems that in our ability to densify, we forgot about building. Well, not really. I mean, I think if you look at the housing starts, both across the country and in Hamilton in the last uh, couple of years, uh, you know, we have seen a very significant increase in, in housing starts, up about 40%. The problem was that we've also seen a very a larger increase in the population growth, mainly on the backs of immigration. Uh, both, uh, both the new permanent residents, but more particularly temporary foreign workers and international students. Uh, we issued 622,000 international student visas last year. Uh, international students, you know, they need places to live. They go into the rental market and they put pressure on the rental market. So we, we, you know, we, people can get on a plane today and arrive tonight or tomorrow. We can't put a house on a production line and produce it for tomorrow. So what we no. have is a lived effect where we have very, very significant and expansive population growth and the inability of our production system, both municipal approvals yeah. and the ability of the industry and the builders to build enough housing fast enough to keep up. So there is a, a rhetoric around that, you know, we've got this chronic undersupply. It's not so much an undersupply as it is an inability to keep up with expanding demand. And it'll take us a few years to. And when you don't keep up with that expanding demand over decades, that's when you end up where we are. So, again, it's a cumulative effect of the same thing, wouldn't you say? Uh, anyway, it, I got to leave it there. The effect when it started three or four years yeah. ago, it didn't start 20 years Like ago. people are saying now, well, you can't build yourself out of it. Well, if you'd kept up with it in the first place, we wouldn't be here. Stephen, I'm plumb out of time. We'll chat again on this. Stephen Pomeroy with us, professor of School of Public Policy and Administration, Carleton University. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter, of course, in regard to inflation, affordability, everything, including groceries. Uh, some chatter about uh, competitors such as Costco and Walmart in this uh, environment, driving prices up, keeping prices down. Let's say, uh, bring in Ambrush Chandra, Associate Professor of Economic Analysis and Policy, University of Toronto, and with us now. Ambarish, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, thanks, Pat. So, uh, obviously, we know what the debate is in and around the grocery stores. We've had uh, the CEOs come to testify before Parliament and all this sort of thing and such. What is the angle with Costco? Because I've heard some say that, you know, competition is good, whether it's Canadian-based or American-based. Costco and, and Walmart, obviously, uh, American-based companies. Is this does, does, does having Costco and Walmarts involved in something like this, does this help the consumers? Does this hurt? I mean, having Costco and Walmart in Canada is definitely unambiguously good for Canadian consumers. There's no doubt about it. Just more choices, more competition is better. Uh, what we're seeing, though, is uh, I think parliamentarians sort of trying to pick on these, well, all, on all the grocers, but especially the American ones yesterday, and as though they're somehow more responsible for driving up prices than the Canadian ones. And that's something that I just don't agree with at all. We'll certainly know of, of these two companies and how they do it and it's volume, volume, volume and, and, and they're known both places for having extremely low prices. So uh, does that, does that argument even fly? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if anything, Walmart and Costco, like you said, are actually charging a little bit less than the, the big Canadian grocers on the items they compete with. So, no, that argument doesn't fly. And in fact, American grocery store margins in general are lower than those in Canada. I mean, so we should be looking at the state of our grocery industry and the lack of competition in it rather than, you know, complain about foreign competition that's actually helping drive prices down further. That's exactly where I want to go on, Barish, because I've heard that very very much similar to the U.S. Uh, market, there are way more competitors. Now, of course, it's a bigger country, more people, all of that. Um, but is that what is needed in the Canadian market? Would that help at all? Or, you know, I mean, we are where we are, supply chain, COVID, what have you. Um, you know, more competition wouldn't necessarily help us here, or would it? I mean, I think more competition would be helpful in general over the long term. There's no doubt it would. It wouldn't have uh, it wouldn't have addressed the recent uh, big spikes in inflation because those you know we saw everywhere. They were in Canada. They were in the U.S. You know, inflation was was and has remained in place in Europe, all over the world. So you know, having more competition would have just blunted the edge of that, but it wouldn't have addressed the underlying causes of inflation, like you said, supply chains, the war in uh, Europe, all of those issues. Many have talked about how much uh, just the sheer profit uh, that the grocery chains have been making. They say it's because they've diversified what they're selling, uh, bringing in drugs like Shoppers Drug Mart or, or different avenues like that, that that has been responsible for the the profits that you're seeing. Is that valid? Does that take the sting away? Does you know? Some people are saying, well, why don't you take your money from your cosmetics and give the savings to the, uh, you know, to the grocers? But obviously that's not not how business works. What are your thoughts? No, that's exactly right. Look, the grocers and every private company will always make as much profit as they can. That's what they're in the business of doing. When prices are generally low, we don't notice. When prices are high, we look around for someone to blame and we blame their profit margins. And of course, you know, their profit margins are bad news for us. Um, but their profit margins persist even when prices are low. They persisted even before the inflation took, o- took over. So what we would, what we could benefit from would be deep structural changes to how we, you know, address competition in this country. But this sort of exercise of, you know, calling in the CEOs to stand before parliamentarians and answer a bunch of tough questions, that's just performative, in my opinion. I don't think that's going to do anything. Yeah. So it would, is it difficult for somebody smaller in this business to get bigger or somebody to come in from outside and, and invade the, you know, the big two or three that have had such a dent? It is difficult. Uh, there's, you know, you're not really going to see very many startups. I mean, you do have some independent grocery stores, but you know, you all of your listeners will know their prices tend to be higher because they just have lower volume and they have higher average cost. That's just the, the economics of this business. They're very unforgiving unless you're a really big player. There's really no getting around that. The only thing we can do, or the, the couple of things we can do, I would say, would be to encourage as much competition as possible, including foreign competition, and to to use our tools of competition policy, which we've really not been using for the last few years, and go after these grocers when they engage in bad behavior, like when they engage in price fixing or when they collude on uh, pay for, for cashiers at, at grocery stores. Those are the kind of things where the government should be addressing lack of competition, uh, but they're not. And instead, we're having these sort of, you know, uh, performative hearings. How do the, we, we don't have much time here left, but how do the smaller ones like the Longos and the Farm Boys survive? I mean, obviously, they're going for uh, maybe an, a little upper end customer or such, but they're still smaller. Is it a matter of time before these people are taken over by a big one? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. They, they go after a small niche, whether it's, you know, high end products or organic products or something, you know, a small market, which they can exploit. 
And the ones that are successful, they grow a little bigger and then they get taken over. And, they, you know, we saw that with yeah. the Sobeys Longos takeover a couple of years ago. So, I mean, this is a sort of the story of competition in the grocery sector, unfortunately. Ambara Chandra with us, Associate Professor of Economic Analysis and Policy, University of Toronto, talking about food prices and how that involves Costco and Walmart. More in the mix. Uh, Ambarish, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. All right. Uh, we certainly know the situation around uh, First Ontario Centre, going to be closed for renovations. Uh, the Bulldogs up in Brantford for three years, blah, 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 blah. Now we're hearing that uh, construction, the, the reno, is going to be two months in lading, uh, uh, two months in, in delay uh, to start because the 2023 Grey Cup Festival. Two months, I don't know, does it matter a lot when you're talking about a reno? Uh, and also the festival, that's pretty big deal too having the gray cup here how do you balance it let's bring in jasper uh, uh Kajaski, coordinator precinct group director of the arena renovation project and with us now jasper thank you for the time i hope you're well thank you very much scott everything's great uh jasper first of all why is this happening now why are we hearing about this now well because as we were moving forward with our plans in regards to the renovation which as part of our contract with the city had to accommodate the Canadian Country Music Awards, which are scheduled in September of 2023, which had already been awarded to Hamilton before our contract with the city kicked in and our negotiations were done. We then realized afterwards that when the 2021 Grey Cup was held and because it was COVID restricted, the Canadian Football League simply gave Hamilton the 2023 game without any bid. Our agreement with the city had already taken effect and we were already working on the renovation time schedule. But then you had the issue of the fact that the Grey Cup, which had been restricted in 2021, now wanting to have a full festival and hoping to have use of the Coliseum, yet we were going to be under construction. So you had these two things up, you know, in in conflict with each other. And our uh, Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, although we have an obligation to get this project started, and of course delay costs money, and it puts off, you know, when the project ends, still we had, you know, the, the Tiger Cats, the Canadian Football League and the community wanting to have a full Grey Cup festival. And after careful consideration, we made the decision that for the benefit of the community, uh, we would delay the construction so that the Grey Cup would be the full festival that everybody wants to see happen. Uh, from a Hamiltonian's perspective, I can see how this makes perfect sense. You've got the Grey Cup. You want to put on the best party. You want to honor anything that you had prior to the renos and such. But also as a taxpayer, I'm saying, how much is this going to cost as extra? Well, you know, obviously any delay is costly. Um, a great amount of that risk is in the hands of the private sector. So we're having to work through how it's going to affect our plans but at the same time, we're part of the community, and the Grey Cup is a huge event. This isn't just another concert. Yeah. Grey Cups don't happen that often. And given the fact that this is two Grey Cups in two years, while I don't want to in any way compromise the ability of Hamilton to get another Grey Cup very quickly, I mean, we'd love to have it all the time, but it's shared between the nine uh, member clubs of the Canadian Football League. Yeah. You know, it's likely that the Grey Cup is not going to be back imminently, and therefore, we understand that the community wanted to have the full festival, the whole show. And mm-hmm. we made the decision that notwithstanding 
the you know whatever cost there is and and difficulty that comes with the delay the legacy of having a full great cup festival um, on behalf of the entire community was more important, and that's why we decided to do it. You know that you're going to get pushed back, Jasper, because people are going to say, oh, this is just another excuse for a delay. We knew delays were coming, but, you know, here they're already baking it in, so to speak. What do you say to that? Uh, you know, everybody, I understand this is a complicated project, and there are going to be many people who have many things to say. We're inside the project. We know what's going on with it, and we're just doing our best to to get this thing going, but taking into account the fact that there are other priorities as well. So you can't worry too much. Everybody has a right to opinions about different things. This is the kind of project that's going to lead many people to comment on it, people on social media. It's, it's a public project. Even though it's run by the private sector, it's in the public interest. And so I have no issue with people having opinions. That's fine. But it's our job to actually have to get the arena renovated. That's what we're going to do. But it's also, I think, part of our responsibility to be open to the fact that there are other priorities. And the Grey Cup is a, is a huge event for the city. It's yeah. a national event. And we just take, took the, we took the decision that we had to make sure that, that Hamilton had a full festival. And... We're, you know, obviously, it, it depends on the length of the delay. When we're talking months, it, it's it, it's an issue, but it's not like we're delaying by a year or two years or something like that. So we felt that it was a reasonable decision to make in the circumstances. Uh, do you foresee any other delays? Is a delay inevitable with a project of this magnitude? No, it's a question of just getting everything completed up because once you close down, it's closed down. Yeah. Once the hoarding goes up and you start demolition and there's dust and there's other things going on, it, it's the mo when the moment comes that the building is closed, it's going to be closed for a while. We anticipate an approximately 20-month construction schedule into that two-year range. And we have no doubt that once people realize that it, it, it's actually happening, it's, it's, it's hard. Construction is always tough. And especially when it's an existing building that people are used to going to and they're excited about events taking place there. So we have no doubt that for the period of construction, it's going to be disruptive. But when it reopens, I think everybody's going to be extremely excited about what the building ha will have become by then. A state-of-the-art entertainment center, the premier sports and entertainment destination in, in southern Ontario outside of the Scotiabank Arena in Toronto in terms of a large arena. And we're very excited about what this building is going to be and the legacy it gives for 50 years and beyond once it reopens. Jasper Kujawski with us, coordinates the precinct group, director of the Arena Renovation Project, a delay of uh, two months due to the Grey Cup Festival. And, um, boy, you know, we, if you're going to do it, do it right. Uh, Jasper, thanks for the time. Thanks for the uh, insight. Keep us posted. Good luck. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about budget with Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well. Thanks, Scott. So, Ian, always a big stink made about the budget. The preamble seems to be a better story than the one that actually happens when the budget rolls out. Uh, what's different today than uh, last week? What are your thoughts on this? I think uh, with the in the light of day, as as more people start going over the um, the entrails of the budget and start looking down deeper into the, the the guts of the budget, I think they're discovering more and more nasty surprises. 
my criticism after watching it last uh, uh, yesterday at four and then downloading the uh, the budget document uh, from Finance Canada was uh, it was still is the same as is what I'm going to now tell you. Um, I thought it was um, an enormous mistake, and and I'll explain why I think that. Um, I've been arguing, as you know, you and I have talked about this before, not in the budget context, but in a larger, very macro context, that we are in a different era and a different world now. The world of the last 50 years, which I just date arbitrarily from 1970 to 2020, was the era of the boomers. I'm a boomer, by the way. I think no hide, no hiding that. And that period was dominated by the boomers. And there were the way I like to put it with my students is there were too many of us relative to the jobs, or you could put it another way, there weren't enough jobs for all of us. And so for 50 years in Canada specifically, we talked endlessly, federally, provincially, and even municipally about income support in various dimensions or, um, you know, helping people with their housing costs. And so we, const we constantly enhanced or continuously enhanced over the years, EI and old age pensions and guaranteed income supplement and Canada pension and so forth, because we our focus was on income support to supplement the incomes of people because there weren't enough jobs. Those days are gone. They're over. They're dead. There's only a third of the boomers left in the workforce, and they're going to be at the door in the next five years. All we're looking at is massive shortages from now for the next half century. And more importantly, and this is the OECD and other major agencies like the IMS are saying we're going to be looking at much, much lower growth rates. And Canada specifically has much lower productivity rates. Well, growth, for those who say, I don't care about growth, growth is what generates net new tax revenues to pay for all the goodies we want, higher education, pay for colleges, universities, healthcare, environment, and so forth. So you need growth to generate the, the revenues to pay for that. Secondly, you need the money to, to raise the, you need growth and productivity to produce a, an increasing standard of living. So given all of those crises, facing us or those problems, those threats facing us, I should say, and that the OECD is predicting that we're projecting that we are going to be dead last of all the high income countries in terms of hmm. prosperity and growth. You would think, you might think that the government, the prime minister and the, and the finance minister would say, Houston, we have a problem. In fact, Houston, we have a whole bunch of problems. So what did they do? Well, they fiddled. And they played games and they did all this, the, the, you know, this, um, the, these tricks, you know, and I say tricks, mm. you know, reducing yeah. the, the, the rate of tax on, uh, on booze because they knew that that would garner a headline and sure. calling a, a one shot re uh, increase in the G HST rebate, uh, you know, a grocery uh, support. I mean, these which are you gimmicks. can spend on which you can spend gimmicks. on your which you can spend on your rent or your heat or whatever or your kids shoes, anything. Yeah. Go to a hockey yeah. game. And, yeah. and it doesn't, more to the point, people say, oh, you're being harsh, Ian. It doesn't address the underlying problem of food inflation or general inflation. Yeah. You know, liberals love to talk about root causes. This budget did not address any of our root causes. They did not address declining productivity. They did not address slow growth and rapidly slowing growth. They did not address the fact that we are going to have massive labor shortages. They did not address the the uh, inflation in the system. They did not address the fact that taxes are accounting for a significant, not completely, totally, but a good chunk 
of the increases, all of the various taxes in the system. So my point is, is that what we needed was a desperately needed was a strategic budget that was going to focus on long-term growth and prosperity. And we got exactly the opposite. What I'm hearing from you is this is a Band-Aid. This is not a plan. Are Canadians aware, conscious of, because everybody thinks we're just ballooning in everything here, and that's the way they thought about our health system prior to a pandemic, um, you know, that we can just keep living off our prosperity. Is it registering with Canadians that our growth is declining? And I was going to ask you about the report you were just talking about, that we are just not doing as well as we once did and for the future that does not bode well i um i don't think so i don't think it is uh really penetrated yet partly because people are so focused about their day-to-day problems yeah. which i completely understand my my larger concern and i've been saying this for several years now because of capital decline uh, capital investment decline which is uh uh the, probably the single most i remember talking to philip cross he came out to my class a uh, former assistant uh, chief statistician he said you want to know what the country is going to look like in five or ten years look at the capital investment today capital investment is just a big fancy word for saying what companies invest in factories and businesses and so forth because that produces the jobs and the prosperity of tomorrow investment has been declining in fact, investment has been going into other countries. Domestic capital has been going abroad, going out of Canada. And what it is, it's an indictment of our own country. They're saying, you know what? I've got better. There's better deals in other countries. I can go uh, let me- do better and elsewhere. So this, again, we're not, this government is not addressing the problems. And very quickly, Scott, before I run out of time, I'm really worried that we are going to duplicate, not duplicate, but we're going down a similar road to Argentina. In 1918, Argentina was wealthier on a per-person basis than Canada. And over the next 50 years, it took 50 years to run Argentina down uh, under really bad leadership and bad policies. They used to be wealthier than we were. Now today, their GDP income per person is around $10,000. Canada is around $50,000. I don't think anyone can argue that a country that's gone from a very high income down to $10,000 average income per person has gone in the right direction. And they did because of a lot of things that, that, that they did that were hostile to growth hostile to business investment, and they ended up very slowly but steadily and incrementally reducing the standard of living of Argentina. And that's what I'm worried is happening to Canada. I've uh, got less than a minute here, Ian. Uh, I want to touch on this with you. Uh, we're putting a lot of eggs in the EV basket, renewables. We're investing in renewable energy. This is all great. This is the future and such. Yeah. But is this industry heading for the same sort of uh, a train wreck that uh, liquid natural gas is? We're hearing from B.C. Premier Christy Clark, former premier, 16 yeah. years to get a mine built to get these yeah. uh, 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 the um, yes. what we need for the batteries. And, and yet... You know, we're thinking that this is going to be our savior. Yet, just like we, uh, just like development in, in other energies, we can't get it done. Sixteen years right. to get a mine. Sixteen you know, years again, to get a mine done. How are we going quick, to be a leader in this, Scott? Scott very quickly, because uh, again, I don't want to run out of time. If you look at what they've been doing for the last five, six, seven years, this government, the trend. Because I'm always looking at the trend lines, not a specific decision. Is there? There's an increasing centralization. And yet the wealthiest countries operate on decentralized because growth and innovation occurs inside the firm. And yet what we're seeing is this shift 
where we're centralizing and saying that the solutions are going to come out of Ottawa. They're going to choose the industries that are going to be successful. But Christia Freeland herself said in the budget, government shouldn't be picking winners or losers. And so they said, we won't choose which firms. What they're doing is choosing the industries, but that's just one direct, that's just one step removed from choosing the firms and governments don't make these decisions. They should be creating an environment overall that is conducive for investment. And what they're doing is exactly the opposite. These are disincentives and discouragements to businesses across many industries to invest in Canada. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Always a fascinating discussion, Ian. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This is a great story. What an incredible story this is. Uh, A 25-year-old graduate student at McMaster University is generating a lot of buzz on social media for a popular series uh, she hopes will destigmatize egg freezing among young women. Uh, Shania Bhopal, PhD candidate in Max Global Health Program, has gone viral TikTok videos chronicling her egg freezing journey and challenged traditional opinions about reproductive health. Taking control. Uh, Shania Bhopal with us. Uh, and great to have you here, Shania. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Scott, for having me on the show today. This is a phenomenal story. Uh, first of all, tell everybody what you're doing and why you're doing it. Awesome. Well, I am freezing my eggs so that I can prioritize my career over the next decade. And I am stimulating awareness, sharing a series with my fertility doctor on TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram to destigmatize the conversation of fertility and planning for our future. Uh, this is fascinating because, uh, to me personally, both my wife and I um, uh, had kids later in life. So uh, I understand what you're talking about and the challenges that are facing uh, women who are professionals and decide to uh, chase their education and their dreams. Uh, doing this is one thing, but doing a TikTok series on it is another. This is a very personal decision, uh, Shania. So how did you make the decision to go public with this and, and take us all on the journey? Honestly, I owe it all to my sister and my boyfriend. They're both physicians, and they were mentioning the importance of talking openly about our fertility goals and how it's not often seen on social media, especially from someone who is of a South Asian background. And so all of those factors, I realized I'm so lucky to be able to have access to technology and access to social media. I might as well utilize it to the best of my abilities. Many will think these challenges are all around age. You talked about your South Asian background and such. What are some of the challenges depending upon our cultures? I think oftentimes culture and religion has a large role to play in terms of family planning. And, you know, not only those from the South Asian background would agree, but we have this common timeline culturally that you graduate school, you plan for a family, you find the perfect person, and you'll naturally get pregnant at the snap of your fingers. I call it the Disney effect. And I, I really dislike the stigma associated with infertility, but also alternatives to family planning and how there are options and those options should be discussed. 
obviously your friends, your boyfriend and such, you've, you've got people who, who can really think of it in the same, in the same, through the same lens, they is, view it through the same lens as you are. What about your family and, and what about your friends, other friends? Did you, has it all been positive? It, there was a bit of pushback from various members of my community. And I think because there is no one else that I know personally or that is around us right now sharing this journey online. And I think for me, I'm just so grateful to have the opportunity to access the Internet and have a platform. And so I saw no other option but to empower other women to talk about fertility amongst their groups. I, I want to talk about cost for a sec because obviously this is not cheap. And, and what I thought was interesting in all this, Shania, is that the cost of freezing eggs is roughly, and the process to go through it, is roughly the same as artificial insemination when you're having difficulty. What are your thoughts on that? And honestly, I would not have been able to afford or justify the cost of egg freezing if 80% of my medication costs weren't covered by insurance. So I'm very grateful there. Um, I think the difference with this process is analyzing the health and the number of eggs that you're able to retrieve at 25 versus after the age of 35. You know, looking at the research in terms of the health of an egg as well as the number that they are able to retrieve, it just makes for a bit more of an insurance policy when you are thinking about conceiving versus um, being reactive. So I'm taking a a proactive approach to fertility versus what often we assume is the norm, unfortunately, is a reactive approach to fertility. Again, this is a personal journey, but obviously now a public one. What have you learned through this experience? What about some of the response or feedback you're getting? Honestly, I think the lack of awareness just stems from, unfortunately, our, our education system you know, we talk about sex ed, we talk about pregnancy, we talk about STIs, but we never talk about female fertility in our formal education system. And so I think all the questions that we're seeing online is a testament to how we need to be stimulating this conversation within our formal education system. I also think the cost being such a barrier to so many, there are so many great organizations out there that I think deserve more awareness, such as Fertility Matters Canada, a charity in, in Canada that is working to uh, help subsidize costs for women who are looking to undergo fertility treatment. So I think, again, hopefully this opens up a larger conversation, both at a, a policy level and uh, at the kitchen table. Wow. Shania, this is incredible on so many fronts. Uh, congratulations to you on the journey you've decided to take and, and sharing it with everybody. I'm sure uh, there'll be lots of people who uh, this information will be well, uh, well received. Shania Bopa with his PhD candidate, Max Global Health Program, 25-year-old graduate doing her thing and also freezing eggs and going viral with it on TikTok to share the experience. Boy, you're a teacher already, Shania. Thanks for the time be well good luck thank you scott you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml you know it's fascinating as uh, i'm scrolling down and trying to find my next guest we've talked a lot about remote working and what has changed in the last three years uh, as a result of a global pandemic it seems that society has finally caught up to technology uh, but a new term and a lot of people i've talked about this with my wife for, uh, many times people think okay this is the situation we're going back this many days this is going to be the temp this is 
a revolving door. This is going to continually change. What we have just set off now, I believe, is as big as the Industrial Revolution, the technolog- uh, technological revolution. What we are seeing now is a massive shift in the way we do things. And you know what? You stop the world from spinning for three years. That's what happens. Uh, so what we're seeing now, uh, I mean, you know, don't settle in because I don't think that's the future. It'll continually change over the next couple of years. What is the borderline? global workforce, for example. Let's bring in Sunil Johal, Vice President of Public Policy CSA Group, and with us now. Sunil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Would you agree that what we're going through right now is by no means the permanent template? This is not set in stone, and this is just the beginning of the change? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely uh, the case. I mean, we're coming out of the pandemic, hopefully. I mean, kind of three years on, uh, basically this week, kind of end of March 2020. And we saw five million, almost five million Canadians shift to working from home at the beginning of the pandemic. And we've seen uh, some of those people go back to work, probably half or more. Uh, but, But kind of to your point, I mean, what's the experience that firms have gotten during that time? becoming much more comfortable with their workers uh, not being in the office. And what does that mean uh, longer term in in terms of uh, companies thinking about, hey, you know what, Uh, we don't need people in the office and I don't care if somebody's in Hamilton or uh, Honduras, if somebody can do the job for me uh, at an effective um, in an effective way, and I can get a cheaper uh, person to do the job. I, th- I think we're really kind of potentially at the at the advent of a new uh, a new world of work where where firms are much more comfortable parceling out jobs to the the best and the brightest wherever they live, and that doesn't necessarily have to be in Canada anymore. And it seems like we've just peeled back the first layer of this onion, Sunil, and we're talking about things like real estate, like companies wanting people to come back because they've got this big HQ um, uh, 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 complex and what have you. It needs bodies in it to function, but things are slowly changing. And that's probably the first thing that we're noticing. But this goes quite a few layers deep. This is going to change almost everything, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so we put out a report with the CSA Public Policy Center a couple of weeks ago looking at really what are all those public policy implications touched by remote work. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, office environments. So, I mean, there's been a significant decrease in foot traffic to downtowns across uh, Canada. And in a lot of places, it's kind of still 50, 60 percent of what it was pre-COVID. That's impacting the businesses that are operating in those downtown cores. It's also going to have potential real implications for the budgets of cities who are reliant on uh, workers coming downtown and filling up those big office towers, which uh, provide commercial property tax revenue to cities, touches affordable housing. I mean, everybody knows the costs of uh, renting a place or buying a place are are sky high right now across the country. Um, Theoretically, remote work could act as a a bit of a mitigating force there. If you can move three, four, five hours away from your office, you can presumably move into a cheaper uh, place. Uh, but uh, what happens if you, if your employer is expecting you to come back into work one or two mm. days a week? It kind of kind of constrains your ability to take advantage of the cheaper housing uh, piece. So a, a, a whole range of implications. I mean, the environment, uh, a lot of reductions in terms of climate change, uh, emissions like G- GHGs, 
if we don't have as many people going into the office every day. But, mm. but I mean, a big question that firms have been asking and kind of debating, and I don't think they've really settled on is, what's the productivity level of people who are working remotely versus working in the office? And there's a lot of research coming in that in some circumstances, it seems productivity is higher. In some cases, it seems it's right. not quite as uh, good. So, so I think, I mean, at the end of the day, that's probably the thing most companies are going to care about. I mean, if people are more productive working yeah. remotely, let's get them working remotely. And this is also proven, Sunil, that one size does not fit all. I mean, it's depending on the scenario, the industry, your position, what have you, your experience level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no way you can really kind of have a one-size-fits-all policies or approaches for something like this. I mean, you mentioned experience level. For a lot of younger workers, you're probably going to want to be in the office sometimes yeah. to get FaceTime with senior uh, executives and your and your management. Whereas if you're towards the end of your career, maybe that doesn't matter uh, as much to you. And and as you say, I mean, different firms have different requirements. I mean, in some cases, it's they, they need people there to kind of collaborate and, and talk to each other or provide customer service in a certain uh, way. But in other cases, uh, there, ha- there have been kind of instances in the tech sector, particularly where it seems people are as productive or more productive working remotely because they don't have as many distractions. They kind of spend that additional time they're saving on commuting actually working. So they're actually working longer um, hours. So it, it really does kind of come down to what individual firms, what in particular industries think about this issue. And, and I mean, the other thing is, I mean, you can't necessarily put too much weight on what's happened the last three years. I mean, everybody has been going through a super stressful situation with COVID. Um, So is that really an accurate measure of how people are going to perform going forward when presumably there's a little bit less stress uh, on them from a kind of work uh, perspective? I think what helps drive this home too, Sunil, is in, you know, maybe if you're older like myself, but when they start comparing this to other eras, like, do you think this is, uh, will have as much impact or is having as much impact as say uh, the manufacturing shift of the late nineties and two thousands and even back into the eighties when we saw jobs go elsewhere and such, Are, are we seeing that big of an impact here? Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, possible. So, I mean, if you look at what happened to the manufacturing sector in Ontario in the early 2000s, I mean, we lost about 300,000 jobs over the course of about 10, 12 years. And why was that? Kind of in the in the wake of NAFTA, um, companies realized that, hey, we can we can send some of these jobs, auto assembly and others, uh, mm-hmm. to places like Mexico, to, the, to Southeast Asia, and we can d- build products that are as good or close to as good for a much cheaper price. And historically, that hasn't happened as much in what we'd call like the knowledge worker realm. So professional workers, lawyers, accountants, those type of folks, because firms felt, well, there's got to be kind of the same cultural context. People aren't going to be able to navigate a workplace environment if they're from a different um, country. But I really think that some of those cultural gaps have declined significantly in the past 20, 25 years. I mean, everybody around the world is watching Netflix. Everybody can use chat GPT to help them mm. write an email. Um, so it's funny how just saying those. It's funny how saying just those two things, Sunil. All of a sudden, everybody around the world can relate to what you're talking about. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like we've all got yeah. kind of a much more common cultural currency in 2023 than we did in 2000 when I mean the internet was still relatively new. So I really feel that some of those barriers. The cultural barriers that firms were a little afraid of, well, ah, we can't shift these jobs to Eastern Europe or to Southeast Asia because people don't speak the language in quite the same way. They're not going to get the nuance of the workplace. Probably aren't there anymore. And, and it's in a in a super competitive environment where every dollar matters. Well, if you can get your lawyer, lawyer or your accounting uh, help at a third the cost, 
a lot of firms are going to are, mm. are going to try it, and and the pandemic's really given them the experience of knowing, hey, we can work remotely. We don't need people in the office. So it's, in my mind, a pretty short jump from somebody's. 30, 60 kilometers away working remotely to they're on the other side of the world working uh, remotely. So Neil Johal with us, Vice President, Public Policy, CSA Group, the ever-changing workforce. So Neil, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on. We've talked about artificial intelligence on the show, uh, or maybe it's better presented as people have tried to tell me about artificial intelligence on the show. And uh, we've talked, uh, especially with Carmi Levy, about uh, uh, chat, GPT, and, and, you know, honestly, I thought all it was doing was writing my kids' essays. And I find out that's like not even the tip. That's the that's the pinhead of the <laughs> iceberg. Carmi Levy is with us, technology analyst and journalist. Uh, Goldman Sachs predicting that advances in artificial intelligence could lead to more than third, 300 million workers losing their jobs. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. And I know you're busy because I've seen you on every single media outlet today talking about this. Good for you. Yeah, artificial so, intelligence seems to have just exploded. Everyone wants to talk about it. And, uh, and uh, although I think now I need to have a conversation with my kids about their essays, but that's, maybe that's a story for later. Okay, so when I started this conversation with you, Carmi, I'm, and we talked mm. about chat, GPT, and, and the kids using it to write essays and such, I had no idea this was as deep as it is. Um, I've talked to people anecdotally that have used chat GPT on business plans, business concepts, where it has given them every single angle that you could think of, whether it's cost, this, that, or the other, on how to start a, a concept, or uh, I'll use the example of a restaurant. Uh, this person also would would use it to study and analyze their Google reviews and how to best correct things that weren't going well. I was absolutely mm-hmm. stunned. And this person said, you you will not believe that how this is revolutionary, uh, revolutionizing the restaurant industry. I've had the same conversation with a friend of mine who's a lawyer, and and, and the same things happening in his firm. What are your thoughts on this? How do you balance it? I almost feel like we're on the edge of a revolution and we're still at the very early stages where we've all just been given access to this magical new tool and we don't quite know what it's going to do for us yet, but we're sort of rolling up our sleeves, trying different things, figuring out what would in the tech industry we like to call use cases. So what are the scenarios where it can add value? And we're learning very quickly that it's like, oh my goodness, it can do a lot of really neat things. Now, some of those things are frightening because it means that a lot of the work that, for example, a lawyer used to charge you hundreds of dollars of hour, hundreds of dollars per hour for, uh, can now be done in an automated fashion. Uh, but the thing is, is, is it isn't going to take over writing. It's adding, it's being added to the toolkit of a writer to yeah. make them a better writer, help them do better research. It's like having a, a research assistant in your pocket who, you know, has already been able to scour the entire internet and can answer any question that you throw at it. So we're still learning. And almost every day I see new scenarios, new use cases come along. I've seen it being used to create a video game from scratch. Uh, I've seen it being used to create code, uh, like which to me is amazing, right? Like it, I remember when Google was first introduced and we did the same thing with search engines. You know, every new generation of technology, every revolutionary technology starts like this. And that's kind of where we're at now. And we're almost breathlessly figuring out what can this thing do for us? And it'll be a while before we have all the answers. We're getting there, though. 
It's interesting, though, Carmi, because it's like the inter- the Internet was it, it, at your fingertips, everything. You've got everything at your fingertips. What this has done is gather it all and put it together and uh, package it in a nice little thing for you, whatever your desire is. Exactly. You know, Yes, if I search for something, if I Google it, the Internet is definitely at my fingertips. But it's kind of hard to use, and it's kind of hard to draw insight from it. Yes, I can throw some search terms into a search engine, and it'll return a bunch of links to me. But I still then have to go through those, figure out which are the ones that I want to click on, which ones jump out at me. Uh, you know, Did I use the right search term to get the right set of links? And then I have to derive insight from those links, as opposed to... Uh, an AI-driven chatbot like ChatGPT, which uh, I, I ask it a fully formed question, it gives me a fully formed answer. It reads all the stuff in those links, and then it tries to come up with an answer that is intelligent and value-added. Hmm. So it's still up to me to determine, well, did it get it right? Because misinformation is still a problem. It's hoovering all of this data from the internet. Not all of it is legit. So yeah. sometimes it's outright wrong, and I have to be the filter there. I have to d- decide, okay, do I trust it or do I not? I need to do more research. But at least it means I'm not starting from a blank page. It means I'm starting with more to begin with, which in the end, I think, will allow me to create better reports. It will allow me to have better insight because I have more powerful tools. And I don't have to be the expert all the time. I can I can sort of lean on chat GPT to give me a little bit more, and then I can use my brain even more at a higher level. Okay, so this thing, the computer and the Internet started, and then we all spent the next several years, decades, trying to figure it all out, and we're using it. It's all part of our life now. We've seen this in a post-pandemic world. Is this like the beginning of the Internet all over again? It is it that is. much of an impact? Think about, yeah, because, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember when the commercial internet, internet became a thing in the early and mid-90s. And up until then, I mean, I, I had been using computers all along, and I was online to a certain extent. All my computers had modems, and I would dial into these systems directly. But the Internet was a whole other level. It was global. Mm. I could connect to resources anywhere. And I remember thinking very clearly the first time that I signed on and started poking around, it was like something has changed here. And that's the way it is with disruptive of new technologies. I imagine yeah. it would have been the same thing when someone first saw a Ford Model T back in the day. Or uh, electricity. Technologies yeah. are supposed to be disrupted. They're supposed to throw us out of our comfort zone. Yeah, there's potential for, for risk. There's potential for misuse. But I'd like to think that the good outweighs the bad. And I think as long as we focus on the good, we're going to do some really amazing things with this. Maybe, I don't know, cure cancer. It can be done. We have that wow. much more power available to, to us hmm. today than we did just a few months ago. All right. We have got like literally no time left. But how do you balance this? Some are saying you throttle tech. Can you do that? How do you balance this? Well, there are uh, 1,100 leaders uh, in technology, including Elon Musk, Bill Gates, uh, Steve Wozniak, who invented the Apple computer. They uh, have signed an open letter basically saying that they should shut down training in artificial intelligence for about six months until we figure out how to ensure that we are all protected. Uh, There's merit to that. I don't know how you stop uh, the investment in a technology. But I really do think as a society, we should be talking about this and government should be asking questions, holding inquiries on Parliament Hill, uh, bringing experts in and saying, okay, how do we take advantage, derive the good, but avoid the risk? Uh, there's got to be a way to balance it and government certainly play a role here. Artificial intelligence, what does it do? Uh, pretty much everything. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Fascinating discussion again, Carmi. Thanks for the time. Be well. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now, Scott. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. I'm well. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm not sure I was going to talk to you, uh, talk with you, uh, talk to you about today. Uh, what the hell? Uh, cause there's, uh, not really, you know, I mean, there's been so many juicy things that we've, uh, not into in the last day or so. So let's go with this. Uh, we had, uh, some people on from the precinct, uh, thing for the whole renovation of, of First Canadian, mm. uh, First Ontario Center rather, and the delay of two months. The reason they're delaying, uh, the start of the renovations is so they can be used, uh, I guess in November for the uh, Great Cup festivities, which, you know, obviously a scaled down version uh, during the pandemic. Now they want to do the full, full meal deal, which makes total sense. Yes. Are you going to do the party, then run it? Your thoughts on delaying this two months? Um, obviously, any delay is going to cost money. What are your thoughts? I would, when I heard this, my first thought was, uh, you better make sure that construction starts before next April. And I know that's still a ways away from early November, mid-November when the Grey Cup is on. But if you don't get started before next April, all those teams that left could have played here for another year. Oh, wow, that's something else to consider, isn't and, it? Holy and smokes. how bad is it going to look if there are delays in whatever else and all of a sudden April rolls around and shovels still have not gone into the ground or turn a phrase, whatever you do to renovate the inside of a building. And the Bulldogs could have played here again, or the Honey Badgers could have played here again, or the Rock could have played here again. And instead, the building is just sitting there idly doing nothing. So whatever, I mean, and I'm, I don't know if they're behind. I don't know. I don't know. All I'm saying is you darn well better have something going on before that happens, or this looks ludicrous. Also, you know, the you have to think too. The longer you delay this, and this is a delay before it starts, and you know, I mean, obviously, there's delays in construction projects. I think that that's just to be expected, unfortunately, nowadays. But the longer you delay this, the more those teams settle in into their other environments and not at First Ontario Center, and that's the scary part too. Well, so uh, the Bulldogs, for example, Michael Andlauer, the owner of the Bulldogs, um, the construction is supposed to go for two seasons. He's locked into Brantford for three seasons yeah. for the very, which was probably a smart move well yeah. it's the very reason he said yeah. he has said publicly I don't believe this is going to be done on time what is yeah. ever especially in Hamilton what is ever yeah. finished on time why in the world would I plan for something that I don't believe can possibly happen and look from his perspective he's been arguing for a new arena for years and years and years and years and they've always said oh it's just around the corner it's just around the corner and he could have built a new arena on the mountain at Lime Ridge and had it been open now and then his team playing in it and we're still not even starting the construction on this new renovation so I mean I I, I gotta say I, I I think he is probably I'm more relying on his time frame than anyone else's time frame right now because I don't see any reason I mean, I'm going to be Missouri. You're going to have to show me that you can be done when you say you're done, because right now I don't see any reason to expect it. And, you know, I can't help but feeling, and I don't want to be pessimistic about this in any way, but it just reminds me of the beginning of Cops when it opened up and you got this great, big, beautiful, shining facility and nothing going on in it. 
Well, I mean, at the, in the early days of COPS, uh, when it was COPS, um, you know, they had a lot of big events, the World Juniors. I mean, World Juniors really got a lot of traction and became a huge thing with Eric Lindros here. Yeah, that was, yeah, um, yeah. you know, there were other things that the Canada Cups when they're here. I mean, it was a, it was an event thing and they had teams. They had the Steel Hawks playing. Yeah, there. They you, had can't, the, you need something regular to, you know, keep it keep yeah, the lights but, on. But then you bring in the Dukes of Hamilton, which might have been the worst junior team in the history of, of hockey. So, I mean, look, it, the, as I say, the appearance, and appearance isn't everything, but the appearance if this thing is sitting there with all the teams gone and nothing going on is going to be horrible and it's going to, as so many people, if that were to happen, and I don't know if it will or not, but so many people, Scott, if that were to happen, would go, oh, peak Hamilton. We get rid of all the teams and then nothing happens and we could have had them again for another year. That, that, that just cannot be the case. It can't. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Have a great show, Scott, as always. Thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, you too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. The last word today comes from Miriam Webster. The word of the day is immaculate, like the end of the show.